Ready to buy your first home? Want the 411 on how to buy and get the most house for your money? Welcome to the First Time Home Buyers Podcast, where you'll discover everything you ever wanted to know about buying your first home, but were afraid to ask. Now, from Austin, Texas, here's your host, licensed realtor, Shane Blackshear. Hey, and welcome. You are listening to the First Time Homebuyers Podcast. I am Shane Blackshear from FirstTimeHomeBuyer.com. Listen, today we're going to talk a little bit about mortgages. Uh, that's one of the, the stickiest things for first-time homebuyers. It sounds scary. You're borrowing a lot of money. So I have brought an expert in here with me. Greg Bobbitt is a lender here in Austin, Texas. Uh, welcome, Greg. Thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, Greg, you know, kind of the format of the show is that we're here for first time home buyers. Uh, we want to give them everything that they would possibly need to know um, and starting from from ground zero. So let me start with that. Um, let, let's say, you know, a first time home buyer or anyone for that matter, uh, they they contact you, uh, they send you an email or they, they call you up on the phone and say, hey, I'm I'm thinking about purchasing a home. And uh, what what goes on from there? Take it from there. You get a call, you get an email. What happens after that? Well, one of the most important things to do is for a first-time home buyer to get pre-qualified. Uh, that's a process that they would go to a lender. And uh, for example, when I get a call like that, I I go through a um, basically an interview. Uh, it's a loan application in in general. Uh, we take a look at uh, their assets that they have, including bank accounts. We also look at income and um, we uh, do a debt to income ratio because we also pull their credit. We look at the credit rating and we also look at uh, you know, what they're spending their money on uh, to ascertain a debt to income ratio. So we look at assets, income, uh, we do a ratio check and we look at the actual credit score and rating. Um, if there are any problems that arise uh, because someone has had problems in the past with their credit, uh, we work with them on, on that. Uh, so once that's done, then we do a calculation also on the amount of uh, payment uh, that, that uh, is really advisable. And actually, Freddie and Fannie have uh, parameters, and so does FHA. Uh, and these are some of the lenders that are out there. Uh, uh, Freddie and Fannie are just like a conventional loan. And, and so now let's, I'm going to interrupt you real sure. quick because you brought up an important point. You talked about uh, Freddie Mac and, and Fannie Mae. Touch on really quick what those are and, and how they, where they come into the loan process. Sure. These are, these are uh, uh, basically government uh, controlled entities that basically buy the secondary market paper. Once a lender has actually funded a loan, uh, Freddie and Fannie end up buying that loan from them uh, and uh, bundled them into a mortgage-backed securities that can be uh, bought on the open market. Um, there's also government loans like uh, like FHA and VA, and they're put into a, basically a separate file. Uh, but how a first-time home buyer qualifies for these things uh, is determined by you know kind of who they are. If they're a veteran, uh, then they are uh, able to get into the VA program and also FHA has a, a veteran program. Uh, there's also the Texas Vet program. So there's some different things that veterans can do uh, to get into a home that uh, uh, at, at really no down payment. Uh, so it's advantageous that they explore their options there. Cool. cool. So um, and now so, so if, if someone's a veteran that's Probably one of the best ways to go is to look for some of those VA programs that are that are out there because they're really a good benefit to uh, to somebody who's in the military. Um, now, help me out here because I remember wait when I got my real estate license way back and, and learned about Freddie Fannie and Freddie. Um, now those were products those came after I, I believe after the Great Depression. Is that right? Well, that's true. Uh, Freddie and Fannie came about uh, as a device to help uh, stabilize the housing market. Mm -hmm. um, as we've seen in the recent past, since 2007, uh, even Freddie and Fannie have needed uh, some stabilizing. 
but by and large, you know, real estate being the great investment it has been historically, uh, these things are are leveling out, and uh, the market is kind of taking care of some of the some of the reserve or the residual uh, effects of that. Cool. And, and so, uh, you know, the thought behind Franny and uh, Franny, Fanny and Freddie, excuse me, always get tongue tied, uh, was and correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, you know, after the Great Depression, it was very it was hard to get banks to lend money, and especially for homes. And so. Uh, these government entities were developed to say, hey, you can loan money to these people because we'll back it up, we'll insure it. Is that, is that more or less correct? It's more or less correct. They do uh, all the insuring up to the 80% mark. Right, right. And then uh, from there, uh, mortgage insurance companies uh, kind of top off the rest, and then uh, a first-time home buyer would put it down a down payment above that. So traditionally, conventional loans, and that's, those are Freddie and Fannie loans, are conventional loans, they're synonymous terms, um, is a 5% down. So a home buyer would need to come up with 5% of their own money uh, to get into the property. And that's for a conventional loan? That's for a conventional. FHA is 3.5%. Okay. An FHA loan is also available to just really just anybody. Um, and it is a government-backed program. Uh, through the federal government, through the Federal Housing Administration, the FHA stands for Federal Housing Administration. Cool, cool. Okay, so good. So, so that's out there. So, um, so you know, those government entities kind of are there to grease the wheel of the banks and kind of reduce their risk, and it really it helps the economy because money keeps flowing. Um, so that sounds good. So, so let me ask you this: Are they, you know, when somebody's looking for a loan, um, how long are they going to be paying back this mortgage? Great question. You know, there's several terms that are available. Uh, there's a 30-year loan is for a first-time home buyer. Many try uh, or choose to go toward the 30-year mortgage because it really has a, a very reasonable uh, payback. The principal and interest that they pay back over time is, is uh, lower uh, than it would be, obviously, on a shorter term like a 15-year. 15-year uh, mortgages uh, get you, obviously you own the home quicker, but payment sometimes is harder for a personal home buyer. To, yeah, to really so, so you know, lo logically, if you're, you're taking 30 years to pay it off, uh, you're going to be paying a lesser monthly payment than a 15-year. That's right, but you do uh, end up paying more interest over the time. You need yep. to keep that in mind. Uh, but uh, the 15, you pay less interest, but a higher payment. So... Not a free lunch there, so you got to do right. what's right for you and your family as far as budgeting uh, for a payment. And your lender will help you with that. Your lender will help you uh, understand what the uh, uh, the industry parameters are um, for you know what what you can afford as far as payment goes. Okay, great, great. And so um, now, are those? I'll be honest. As a realtor, I see the majority of my clients do a uh, a thirty year mortgage. Um, but you said the 15 year is available. Um, are there any other increments of time that are generally available to people? There are. Um, most most people bundle them in 15s and 30 year terms, um, but there are 10 year terms. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a 40 year loan. Um, you uh, don't really, uh, and they're not as popular really, um, mm -hmm. because obviously the 10 year uh, payment goes up again. And then the 40-year, you really don't save that much money. So the 30 yeah. and the 15 uh, continue to be uh, predominantly what people choose. But there are other terms that are out there. Um, and, and what we've uh, talked about uh, so far, what I've assumed, is a fixed-rate mortgage, which on a fixed-rate mortgage, your payment never goes up, never goes down, and the interest never changes over the term. Um, that's kind of the sure bet. Uh, there are other types of lending, such as adjustable rate mortgages that we really haven't uh, talked about. They're available in 15 and 30 year terms also, uh, but those are tied to um, indices that um, you actually are kind of betting on the economy. And, and when you do a adjustable rate mortgage, you, you yeah. see the you see the payment go up and down. Yeah, sure. And so that's a good thing to to talk about is the adjustable rate mortgage. Now, honestly, I'm not a huge fan of the adjustable rate mortgage, and I think that a lot of the, the economic problems that we had back in 2008 were kind of a product of that because a lot of lenders would have a teaser rate at the beginning that was very low and more, more times than not lower than a fixed rate mortgage. So people would say, hey, this looks great. It's a really low 
low interest rate. And then, you know, they'd sign on the dotted line. And then years later, that interest rate creeps up and got to where people couldn't pay it. Um, and, and so, um, so, but, but the interest rate, uh, but the, but that is available. That is an option. Um, do you have any feelings about the, the adjustable rate mortgage? Is, are there perimeters? I mean, obviously at some point it kind of turns it, there's some usury laws that would kick in. You know, obviously you can't have a, uh, you know, is there anything to say that a bank can, you know, lure somebody in at a 3% rate and then, you know, a couple of years later raise it to heck a 20% rate or something like that? Sure. I mean, one thing, the market, but uh, there, there is the uh, a chance that um, uh, somebody could get into an arm that uh, became unaffordable. Obviously, as you pointed out, and it really has happened. Um, there are, you know, real reasons for an adjustable rate mortgage, though. Okay. Um, for example, um, if you are absolutely sure that you're uh, employer is going to move you in three years. Mm -hmm. There's no chance you're going to hang on to this house uh, for longer than that. Uh, then a three-year fixed rate adjustable rate mortgage, in other words, after the third year term, it would, it would start uh, adjusting. Uh, that make, might make perfect sense because you might get a good introductory rate when you know that you're really not going to need the house uh, after three years. Right. The, the loan will be gone after three years. And, and so now does that change in three-year increments? Is that what I'm hearing you say? Uh, normally, uh, there's a fixed rate period for all adjustable rate mortgages. Okay. Uh, and so that could be a different, just for every loan, it's a different amount of time that that's a fixed rate? That's right. Okay. And, and uh, it can be a, a 1, 3, 5, 7, 10 uh, you know, re uh, years that it's fixed, and then after the fixed term, it adjusts after that period of time. So some people, because they know they're you know, their schedule of moving will will ask or opt for a, a adjustable rate mortgage. But for the typical first time home buyer, that is not a, a good product for a first time okay. home buyer. Really it takes somebody that's that's really understands their you know, understands the lay of the land, understands what is possible in an adjustable rate mortgage. Uh, and we not only do we have disclosures on adjustable rate mortgages, and make sure people read that and understand. Make sure you read your disclosures and understand uh, what you're getting into. Um, and with these interest rates we have now, it really is a great time to get into a fixed rate mortgage. Mm -hmm. This, this mm -hmm. is not the time to be gambling with it. It's it's not going to really go down. There's no place for it to go. And and that's a good point too, because as we said in the summer of 2012. Um, there's, and, you know, we're just speculating, but there's probably not a big chance that the rates are going to go much farther down than they are right now. Would you say that's probably correct? And that's what I mean when I say there's no place to go. I mean, that's yeah. that's an overstatement, overreach, but um, it really is hard to imagine uh, that rates could go much lower. Um, lenders have to have to make something over time uh, for their investment in uh Putting people in homes, yeah. Uh, but you know, we we really didn't think they'd be here either. So. That, that's that's true. That's very true. But but that says a lot about where the rates are now. And I, you know, I'm always paranoid that my listeners are going to be thinking, well, you're you're a real estate agent, so yeah, you're gonna you're gonna say that now's the greatest time to buy. But go find someone who bought a house in in the 90s or, or the 80s. I mean, good gosh, you're looking at what was. I've heard people who bought houses in the 80s for like 16%. I yeah, mean, they were double-digit for yeah, sure. Yeah, crazy, crazy. And they were unapologetically double-digit. Yeah. Um, uh, now we have uh, better interest rates now than when we had when Eisenhower was in office. Mm -hmm. uh, this is uh, this is really our historic lows. There's yeah. no doubt about that. No yeah. one would argue or dispute that. And, and so that's a great reason to, to, if you get the mortgage now, lock in that rate for the whole term of the mortgage. I mean... I mean, think about, and most people don't stay in one home for 30 years, but hypothetically, if you had a 30-year mortgage, that 29th year, you're still paying that whatever percentage you got today, and, and those rates aren't going to be that low then. Um, you know, I obviously, I can't see into the future, but that's, it's going to be a heck of a deal, I think. Um, so, so that's great. That's all good stuff. Um, so now, explain to me, because a lot of my, my clients, they'll go on a website and they'll look at, 
at different rates and they'll go to these places where they can compare rates and they see the interest rate and then they see the APR mm -hmm. as well. Explain the difference of those to us. Well, an annualized percentage rate or APR is a, uh, is a function of the rate of your mortgage uh, plus the fees that you have paid to get that rate. Uh, and that would include some of the lender's closing costs and so forth. So, for example, if you say you have a 3% rate on your, on your loan, um, but your APR is 3.5, that means you've paid some fees, obviously, uh, to get that rate. And so it's kind of like the equivalent of that being your actual interest rate, correct, once you add in all the fees? Yeah, well, if you actually take the 3% rate, times the years you're going to pay that back, uh, you're going to, to come up with a, a payment uh, at a 3% rate. So the APR uh, is, is not the rate. Okay. The rate is actually what, what is stated on your note, um, or what the lender has to quote you on a good faith estimate. That's, a, that's the actual rate. But they also have to quote the APR on your truth and lending. And so when you look on the truth and lending and you see an APR that's higher, you know that I'm going to have to pay some fees to the lender for the loan. Mm -hmm. um, if you saw it run backwards, in other words, if you had a 3% 3, 3 note rate, but your APR was 2.9 something, that's well, then you know somebody's paid fees for you. So okay. that's kind of the back and forth of that. Cool, cool. Okay, great, great. So, so would you, if someone's comparing lenders, is it smarter or wiser to just compare interest rates, or should they look at the APR as well? Oh, I think most definitely look at the APR as well, because fees for different lenders can be can be different, um, and, and often are uh, a function of what that particular company charges, and they are, there are some differences. Um, I've, I've heard uh, kind of some misnomers out there that, you know, well, all the lenders are alike, and that really isn't the case. I mean, you really uh, do yourself, I think, a justice when you look at, yeah, you know, at least compare a couple, even if they come well recommended. Um, you can always uh, do yourself a favor by by comparing at least a couple of lenders. Yeah, and so that's a really good uh, subject. I'm glad you you brought that up. Now, uh, you and I met because you were the lender for one of my clients, and uh, I we. Uh, I really like the way you did business. Um, and so I, I usually recommend that my clients uh, get pre-qualified with three different lenders um, just to just to compare because they're all going to probably give different rates. Uh, they're all going to say that they can borrow different amounts. Um, and so there's just a lot of variables there. So besides the, the numbers on paper, what should somebody look for when they're looking for a lender? Well, you know, it's interesting because when you when you start comparing, um, you're trying to compare obviously apples to apples. Uh, it, it becomes difficult because one lender may quote on one day, one on, a, on another, and their rates be different because rates change every day. Uh, so it's really good to to go back and make sure that you have accurately uh, compared, uh, the, you know, what is actually being offered. Um, that, secondly, obviously, you want to choose somebody that you feel comfortable with, or somebody you feel like is is uh, somebody that's going to work on your behalf. And you know, that's that's kind of uh, uh, that's less uh, you know, it's it's rather uh, objective, isn't it? I mean, you really want to feel like this person is is uh, on your side. But then there's the math. Sure. You know, you really want to make sure that uh, what they're offering is you know, and I wouldn't say the lowest man wins all the time either because there are other factors. Uh, somebody may be low on you on a rate, but their fees are such right. It's really, really throwing, throwing them really above what the other other rights are right. really offering. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. So, uh, you know, one thing that obviously, if if you don't feel like when you're talking to prospective lending officer, uh, whether it be on the phone or in person. Um, if you feel like you don't trust that person, I think that's that's a red flag. Uh, this is a person you want to trust. Uh, by and large, in the industry, I find that the the lenders are are people that, that at least come across as trustworthy. But, but you know, there's also um, lenders can drop the ball, and you know, people 
um, have gotten into bad bad situations from that. Just lenders not doing what they're supposed to or doing it on time and things like that. So there is that factor. So I like when people have someone that uh, maybe was recommended to them um, or heard them on a podcast like this, uh, something like that. Um, what about um, what about someone being local? Do you feel like that's important? I think that really can be an important factor. Uh, them having a personal rapport with the real estate agents in the area, um, reputation. Uh, sometimes internet lenders, um, you know, they they give off, a, I think, a, an ability to uh, to be efficient. Maybe mm-hmm. they feel like they're getting a good deal because they don't have a local office, things like right, that. Right. Right. Um, and, but there can be a problem, you know, when, and there are in the lending process, there are sometimes snags that come up where we really want to be able to get face to face with somebody, somebody that you know uh, is going to take care of you, you know, and, and going to go to bat for you. And I think that's important. I think it's important to have a, a personal contact like that. Yeah. So yeah. you can get a hold of them. Sure, yeah. sure. And, and so, because today, I mean, and not just today, it's, it's probably always been like this, but you can get a, a lender across the country somewhere that you found on the Internet, and they may or may not be a good lender. Um, but And I guess you run the risk always, even if it's a local person, but there's something to be said about being able to look someone in the eye who is your lending officer, and they know who you are. Um, and and so I, I just think that there's you know exactly what you said. Uh, there's something to be said about using the local person. They also know the market well. Uh, they know you know um, the area that you're looking and and things like that. And they're just it's just helpful to have. I think um, so. All good points. Um, so so going back to the different kinds of mortgages available, we talked about conventional. We talked about FHA and VA. Now, there's also, uh, you know, my clients see out there, there's USDA mortgage. USDA. What, tell me about USDA real quick. Sure. USDA is actually by the Department of Agriculture has a, a loan out there um, in uh, housing and rural development. So they're, they were really designed as to be a rural loan. They're 100% financing. So uh, no down payment. No down payment. Um, they, they do have uh, some upfront funding fees like the FHA loan does. Um, but by and large, if a property uh, is approvable by FHA, I'm sorry, by the USDA program, uh, then the, uh, the home buyer is going to get a 100% loan. Cool. Okay. Great. So if they're looking for something that's kind of in a rural area, mm-hmm. and is there, if they go on a USDA website, will it list the properties that are for sale that qualify for USDA? You yeah. know, there is a site like, like that. that. Yes. Yeah. And they also give uh, by county uh, the uh, limits, or the loan limits, okay, by county. So because it changes from county to county, it's yes. based on uh, the market right. in the different counties. Okay, great, great, cool. Okay, so let's go back to um, we kind of uh, veered off. We talked about some important stuff, mm-hmm. but go back to just the process. So someone has has called you or emailed you, and they've begun the pre qualification process, um, and you've gotten back to them and you said, hey, you you can. Uh, qualified for X amount of dollars on a house, uh, you know, at this rate, um, and and you you know you would tell them, and they would really tell you probably what kind of mortgage they're looking for, whether it's FHA, and, and so that's a good question for you specifically as a lender. What uh, can someone get an FHA loan through you? Can they get conventional uh, USDA VA? Can you, do you do all those personally? We do all except for the USDA program. The USDA okay. program with GMAC is coming online in uh, September. Okay. So we will be offering that soon. Um, but how we would go about the process when somebody calls me is we again do an interview, uh, an application. Um, I gather up documents from them uh, in in regards to what uh, loan they're doing and what the underwriter is going to want to see in order to verify that the information that we've collected on the application is correct. And so um, I'm going to ask them for a list of documents. Those documents, again, include their assets, their income, uh, their W-2s, perhaps their tax returns. Most, most of the time, self-employed folks out there, uh, don't panic, we're still doing self-employed loans. Uh, but uh, uh, the underwriting guidelines and parameters have tightened a bit since 2007, but uh, 
we're still doing billions of dollars worth of loans every month. Yeah, yeah. So. And that, and let me interrupt you real quick. You know, you hear a lot, uh, especially in the media, about how hard it is to get a loan, to get a mortgage today. Mm -hmm. um, personally, I have found that if you cannot qualify for a mortgage today, then you probably don't need a mortgage right now. Um, I've found that uh, if you're in bad enough shape that you can't get uh, a loan uh, for a home, that you you probably need to get some of your finances in better shape. That um, it probably would not be good for you to own a house at that point. And so it, it kind of irks me because the media has harped on that so much. It's so hard to get a loan, and people just assume that they can't get one when they're perfect, perfectly uh, capable of, of getting a mortgage. Um, so, yeah, any thoughts on that? Shane, that's per uh, perfectly correct, and uh, it it is intimidating, especially the first time home buyers yeah, when they yeah. hear that it's it's so difficult to get a loan. Um, and I think you're right. I think that should have always been the common yeah. sense rule. Yeah. But sometimes, if you are intimidated, you may feel like uh, you don't have a credit score, or you don't have uh, job experience, and so forth. The very best thing you can do is get pre-qualified by a lender. Yeah. Uh, in that process, he's going to pull your credit and have a credit counseling, if you will. I mean, it's not actual credit counseling, but he's going to, to look at that, examine it, and be able to help you out with uh, some of the things uh, that are that are you know troubling mm -hmm. uh, your credit score uh, and get you in position. So if you can't get a pre-qualification that day, you can at least put a plan in place. Yeah, and that's right. And know what you need to do in order to get into a position to buy a home. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, you know, I'll have some prospective clients that just say, you know, we, we made some bad decisions a couple of years ago and I don't know about our credit and things like that. And, you know, all I tell them is just go get pre-qualified. I mean, it doesn't, and I know it doesn't with you and I've never heard of it with anyone else, but it doesn't cost to get pre-qualified. There's no harm done to get pre-qualified, so to speak. Not at all. Um, and really, the biggest thing that you uh, obtain there is information. You know, yeah, you yeah. get knowledge about what you can and cannot do right now, and what a plan would be uh, to make sure that you can pre-qualify in the future. Yeah, and how yeah. soon that would be? Yeah, exactly. So at the very least, you've got a game plan. You know where you stand. Um, it, one more thing about pre-qualifying. Um, so now, when you pre-qualify someone, uh, you do what's called a, a hard credit check. Is that right? Is that what that's called? Sure. Okay. So so basically when it says say I'm buying a house um, and I do something uh, proactive that causes a hard check on my credit. Mm -hmm. uh, now that ever so slightly uh, dings my credit just a little bit. Um, and so and, and jump in here if, if I get anything wrong here. But the way I understand it is if I uh, pre-qualify, if I get try to get pre-qualified for a loan they're going to do that credit check and the credit agencies, they ding my credit just a little bit because they know I'm getting ready to borrow money. Um, now, if I, so it's to say I'm going to get pre-qualified with three lenders because that's what I recommend for my clients. Um, now, correct me if I'm wrong, but if I do, if I get pre-qualified with all those three lenders within a two-week time period, uh, that only counts as one ding against my credit. Whereas if I spreaded that out, uh, over multiple uh, you know, months, then that would be three separate dings to my credit. Is that correct? Is that the way you understand it? <clears throat> yeah, that's law. The law's changed yeah. to be a little more gracious to um, people that are shopping for a car, okay. shopping for a home. Yeah. And um, if you if you pull all those within a, a thirty day period, you're you're not gonna. Okay, so it's thirty days. Yeah, you're not okay. gonna have an issue. Okay. Okay. Days. They know and, that you're shopping for the same house. They know you're not gonna buy three houses. Exactly. Exactly. And and so you know I don't I, I want you know everyone first time homebuyers to know that, but I don't want them to be paranoid about the the ding against their credit because it's so minor. It's really not gonna change anything in reality. Uh, but I do want them to know that that. 30-day period. I'm glad you said that because I thought it was uh, two weeks. But yeah, that, do it within that 30-day period. Um, okay, cool. So so we've gotten uh, you've gotten what you needed from me. You are you you check my credit. Um, I've given you all the documentation, my W-2 if I need or uh, pay stubs. Do you need, usually collect pay stubs if need be? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we we look at uh, your pay uh, assets. We look at your income, your W-2s, so we want to get a year shot of it, and then we want to see what's happened recently. So we also ask for uh, your pay stubs. We get bank statements. Um, 
So we get a pretty good general overview, and then any problems that come up or any, any other documentation uh, that the underwriter might need, we, we collect that as well at that time. Um, so you're pre-approved. Um, you're you're pre-qualified, and, and uh, in the nomenclature, those are they're a little bit different. But once the underwriter has actually reviewed all the information um, and doesn't require anything else in order to render a decision, that's when you're pre-approved. Pre-approval is a, a kind of a neat, um, and there's a differentiation here. Pre-qualified means that I've looked over the numbers and you look like you would qualify based on your credit and your financial situation. Uh, Pre-approval pre is where an actual human underwriter has reviewed the file and has approved you to get this dollar amount of, of a mortgage, which means you're really ready to go. So well, what we're going to do is match you with a property. And so uh, we turn it back over at that time uh, to the real estate agent who goes out and does what you do, Shane. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So that's that's a really good a uh, good distinction as well. And now, so within the lending system, um, you what would what would your title be? The person that that they contact initially and talk with mostly. You a lending officer. I'm a mortgage loan. Officer. A mortgage loan officer. Okay, okay. And then so you talked about it going to the underwriter, and so now that's a completely different person, correct? Yeah, and then there's also a middle person in there. There's okay. somebody called a processor. The processor gathers up all the paperwork, which uh, you know, in total, there's over 30 hands that touch a mortgage file, mm -hmm. believe it or not. Wow. So um, the, the processor goes in and verifies the information before it goes and gets it ready, bundled, uh, mm -hmm. before it goes to the underwriter. The processor will also do things like reach out to the title company and make sure that we get the title work started okay. on the new home purchase course. That's once a property has been identified and you're under contract. Okay. So we'll we'll also get the contract at that time. We'll get the title work going. We'll also order a flood certificate and appraisal so that we'll know how much the um, the house is worth. Uh, during this time period, um, inspections are done. Um, if there's option periods and so forth, those those uh, run their course and inspections are done. Um, the appraisal comes back uh, for an amount of value equal to uh, the sales price, and uh, there's no other issues with the appraisal. Uh, the, the file is uh, done what's called a final underwriting. So they review the information that they've gotten from the borrower, make sure it's still the same and accurate. You know, there are situations where people get pre-approved and they quit their jobs. So yeah, yeah. So uh, let me interrupt real quick. Going uh, two things that I wanted to talk about real quick. Sure. That you touched on. Uh, so the appraisal. You mentioned the appraisal. Mm -hmm. Now that appraisal is done by by the lender, correct? You as the lender, not you personally, but right. someone from uh, from the lending company sends out the appraisal, correct? Yeah, we send out an order for the appraisal, and then it's done by an independent appraiser in mm -hmm. the area. So you contract it out? We do. Okay. We do, and we have a list of appraisers that are approved with GMAC, and they are um, local businessmen okay. that have a license with the state of Texas to do appraisals, and then they go out and they do an independent assessment of what the property's worth. Mm -hmm. And that way, the, the buyer and the seller are, are better protected, insulated sure. from any kind of bias on the part of the appraisal. Yeah, and so that's a, that's a, great, um, that's a great point because the, the, appraisals, the appraiser is going to get paid either way. That's um, correct. If it comes in over appraisal or under, he gets paid either way. So he is truly an independent voice in that, in that circumstance. So yes. now... The, the motivation of you as the lender to have the house appraised is because you don't want to loan money uh, to, to a house that is not worth what the person is paying for it, correct? That's exactly right. And uh, we also, especially, this especially applies for first-time homebuyers. We don't want the first-time homebuyers to be uh, encounter any surprises their first few years of home ownership. Uh, so an appraiser, especially on an FHA deal, less on a conventional, is charged with the uh, duty of making sure that there is a uh, is a low uh, cost of home ownership, if you will, mm -hmm. or at least that the the uh, homeowner, the, the potential homeowner, is apprised of anything that may come up uh, as far as 
the appraising, the, the value of the home. Right. That right. is affected. And now, appraiser doesn't do the same thing as an inspector. Right. Right. It needs to be differentiated. So they're not going to get under the house and look for foundation issues. That's right. They're not going to look for mold and they're not going to, uh, you know, check the plumbing and stuff like that. They're basically giving an overall snapshot to say, I think this house is worth X amount of dollars. That's right. And sometimes they do that as is and sometimes as repaired. So there are some major things that uh, can affect value that they do comment on sure. in the appraisal. Sure. So like if, you know, if, if it is obvious that, uh, that there's a there's a gigantic hole in the roof, well, appraisal is going to say that and say that affects the value of the home. Yeah. And also the lender would be concerned in that scenario that uh, the house would be insurable. Sure. Sure. Rain coming through. That, yeah, that. absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so so now I had a situation with a client of mine several months ago where um got a great house in a great neighborhood. And uh, the appraisal, from the appraiser that the lender had hired came out and looked over the house and the listing agent happened to be there and talked to the appraiser. And the appraiser said, listen, I think that this house is worth what you have it under contract for. But he said, the only comparable uh, house that I can find that had been sold recently is this foreclosure down the street which foreclosures obviously are sold for much less than their natural value because they're bank owned, the banks want to get rid of those. And, and so he said, I don't know, I don't think I'm going to be able to convince the bank that uh, that this house is, is worth what you have it under contract for. So, so, which meant the lender was not going to lend the money to uh, that they had originally said they would to that house because the appraiser said, look, I can't justify the price. You know, like he's like I said, he said I think it's really worth that, but I just can't justify it with the the properties around here that I have. So what we had to do was go back to the negotiating table, and it really wound up as a good thing for my buyers because they got it for the lesser amount. And, and the other thing about that is my buyers had an FHA loan. That appraisal, and and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but that appraisal would have stuck to that house for the next six months. Does that, does that sound right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And, and so even if if um, if we had said, okay, we have to renegotiate this now because they can only get the loan amount for this much. If the owner had said, no, we're not budging, we're selling for the original amount or not at all, um, they would have had to, anybody who came along with an FHA mortgage would only be able to pay that amount that it got appraised for. Um, and so there's a, there is a, a motivation on the seller side to go ahead and lower that price to that appraisal amount. And so I say all that to say just if it comes in uh, slightly under appraisal, it doesn't mean that all is lost. It just means you go to back to the negotiating table uh, and, and go back from there. And like I said, in that situation, it wound up to be a really good deal for my buyers because they got uh, a lesser price on the house. Well, that's right. You know, <clears throat> we are um, seeing that uh, a lot of uh, comparable sales are uh, – uh, Really controlling the, the the value of houses that are that are not foreclosures, and so until the foreclosure the amount of or the number of foreclosures is is lower, uh, this is the this is the buyer's market, as they say. Right, right, yeah, good point. Okay, cool. So so appraisal comes out, and then you, you said something else earlier that I wanted to touch on. I'm trying to remember. So after the appraisal. Uh, oh, oh, and you talked about uh, some people, they get pre-approved and then they quit their job. Well, I guess what they have to understand is they were pre-approved based on their situation when they applied, correct? Sure. So so basically when you pre-approve someone, you're saying, as you stand right now with your job making this much money and your debt being this much and your credit score being this much, we approve you for that. And, and so that's something I emphasize in my first-time homebuyers classes is that once you pre get pre-approved, uh, don't do anything to change your financial situation unless it's for the better. Uh, so don't don't borrow any more money. Don't go and uh, you know do a rent to own on furniture or a fridge or something like that. Don't um, lease a car or or even borrow on a car. Uh, I had a I had some clients when I first got started in real estate who um, I didn't know this, but apparently they were right on the line of being pre-approved and he missed a payment on a student loan and it caused them to not be uh, to not be qualified mm. and they lost the house because of that because he missed one payment on a student loan 
how silly is that? Um, so make sure you pay all your bills on time. Make sure that you don't borrow any more money. Uh, don't quit your job. Um, anything like that? Yeah. Anything to add to that? No, it's it's uh, interesting because I did have somebody that wasn't a first time home buyer. Um, they went out and and they, in the middle of the lending process and, and purchased a car, uh, co-signed the car. They didn't they didn't think that it would be uh, much of an effect, and so they co-signed a car for a child. And uh, seven days before a loan is actually funded, there is a uh, soft pull that's done on the credit to see if if any debt has changed, and it had. And of course that. That uh, you know they're going to get the loan, but uh, it did it did cause questions, more paperwork, sure. things like that. So uh, the better the better and more full and accurate uh, you can be in the process up front, and then don't change anything like you said. Right, right. Uh, it, it makes for a smoother process for sure. Sure, sure. I had I recently uh, applied for a mortgage, and they wanted just kind of a snapshot of my bank account, and so I sent it to them. And what I what I forgot about was we were about to buy a car, and so we were going to pay cash for that car, but uh, but the bank account was going to be significantly different after that, and so my assets would be smaller. And so um, after I did that, I made sure to email you know right away, and then we were not very far in the process at all. Right away, just emailed and said, "Hey, I want you to know X amount of dollars is about to be taken out of my account." Um, there won't be any more debt, but my assets will be that much smaller. And so, you know, let them know that. And that turned out to be okay. But you want to always, you know, make sure that they know everything. And it's not like you're going to pull one over on them. They'll find out. And it'll be much worse if they find out close to the closing day rather than at the very beginning of the process. That's exactly right. You know, all those uh, debt changes change a ratio called the debt to income ratio. Mm, that's good. Now talk about talk about that because that's a big uh, part of, of the qualification process. It is. It is. And different products have different uh, different tolerances for debt to income ratios. Um, but basically, what you do is you just take uh, you know your current monthly income. Uh, a very simple calculation would be to take your current monthly income, um, and that's gross monthly income. That's before taxes. Uh, if you're self-employed, the calculation is different. You go see your lender. But uh, um, if if you take your gross amount of, and if it, there's two workers, it's both of their gross monthly income. And um, what you do is divide that by. Uh, the amount of your debt, including your new house debt, and that becomes a debt to income ratio. And in doing that, um, you, you get uh, part of it, which is the housing debt. There's another ratio, which is all your debt uh, besides uh, your housing. So a debt to income ratio is, is important. I mean, you, you want to make sure that uh, you're not borrowing so much money. Um, and so, by the way, this Freddie and Fannie and FHA and VA and USDA, they all want to make sure that you're not borrowing uh, a larger portion of your monthly income uh, than is sustainable uh, because life does have surprises mm -hmm. and you want to make sure that you're not getting anybody in trouble by loaning the money. Mm -hmm. A general rule of thumb that people throw around and it's not it's not a law regulation per se, but generally what we throw around is a third of your monthly income goes to uh, the mortgage. So we try to keep it under that. Um, so would you say, would you agree with that? Is that a pretty good rule of thumb? Yeah, that, that's actually, a, Fannie has a 29% as a okay. general rule. Now, you know, again, assets and um, credit uh, being high, mm -hmm. high credit scores, uh, good assets, they, those can offset some of these sure some sure. of these classic parameters um, and then they look at the overall debt and that's that's of course all debt car loans mm -hmm. and installment debt and credit cards plus your house payment and that includes your taxes and insurance so they'll lump all that together against uh, your income and take a look at that ratio and typically that ratio uh, is about 40 percent okay um, on FHA loans, they go up to you know 49. So 40, 49 percent, meaning 49 uh, percent of, of debt as compared to your income. 
That's right. Yeah. So okay. roughly half. Okay. Uh, but that that includes all that. Okay. And your house payment, mm-hmm. which you know a first time home buyer you know needs to be needs to be careful you know when they when they get pre qualified for a loan because. You know, it, there's still a there's still a free market out there. Right. Lenders are are expanding ratios as where they were contracting them in 2007, 8, and 9. Now they're expanding these ratios are are kind of coming back up to uh, uh, you know pre 2007 uh, ratio. So, but you still need to be careful. You need to make sure that uh, when you look at all your debt, look at what a house payment is going to be. Make sure that you don't have what what uh, some underwriters term as payment shock. Mm-hmm. Okay, payment shock is let's say you're renting a house for a thousand dollars a month and you're about to get into a house payment that's two thousand. Mm-hmm. You know there are hidden things in there like now you're responsible for house repairs. Yeah, things like that. So you really need to make sure that if you are going up in uh, in what you're going to be paying on a monthly basis that you're prepared for that. Yeah, yeah. That your savings are there and that you're just in a good financial position to that. Yeah, and, and I appreciate you saying that. And that's part of one of the reasons that uh, we got along so much because there's some lenders who they don't care about that. They want you to get into that mortgage, and and if you you foreclose three years later, well, that's your problem. But but you take that into account, and so I, I appreciate that. And then something else that I tell first time homebuyers all the time is just because you get approved for uh, you know two hundred thousand dollars in the house. Doesn't mean you need to go find a two hundred thousand dollar house. Um, if you want to make sure that you're comfortable with those monthly payments, and and um, that when someone's pre-approved for amount, that is their top limit. That doesn't mean that they have to find something in that range. Um, and so, yeah, something that I uh, just encourage you know first-time homebuyers to keep in mind. Okay, so uh, so it goes to the underwriter. Um, what next? Well, once again, they approve it. You're pre-approved. Once we uh, get the contract in, all that goes to the underwriter. They match you with the property. All the property work is done, and that's title and appraisal and any inspections that are done. And then so the finalization of the uh, underwriting is done. So she kind of ties a bow on it, makes sure everything is there, and that this loan is passable to Freddie Fannie, Jenny May, which is FHA's uh, financing arm, uh, that this is ready to go to the end investor, uh, <clears throat> and that there's not going to be any problems with the loan in the future. Um, once that's done, <clears throat> excuse me, um, closing date is is coming up. That uh, was established by the contract, and so uh, there'll be some some last minute. Um, details that are that are done we'll go to the closing table close one cool cool so um how generally how much time does a lender need between the date they go under contract and closing well this is this is really greatly um controlled by the the actual uh, home buyer if if you get your documents in and uh, and when they when the lender makes requests you're you know, you answer them that day with with the documentation that they need. Um, there, there's no reason why you can't close a loan in 30 days. Okay. And get get uh, get get the keys, get the keys to your own home in 30 days. Cool. Um, we do have uh, situations where, um, for whatever reason, somebody got into the lending process, maybe, and things went uh, uh, wrong, and and I've been called and. and can scoop a deal up and we do have what's called a quick close program and if we have everything that we need up front uh, we can sometimes close a loan in 21 days. Cool. So, cool. so somewhere shave off a few days there if need be. Yes. Okay cool so but generally the contracts need to be written for 30 days out. Generally. Yes. Cool. Cool. Okay great. So um, I have a, one big question that I get a lot from sure. uh, my, my home buyers are uh, they don't want to be surprised at the closing table. So obviously, a down payment is due at the closing table, the day of closing, and then if they have any closing costs, which you know, side note, I usually, uh, usually my first-time home buyers will ask that the sellers pay closing costs. So we try to estimate that as best we can, so that there's nothing above the the uh, down payment uh, due at the closing table. Um, but it, it's kind of hard to pinpoint that always. So, mm-hmm. so one thing that uh, for some homebuyers are always very concerned about is 
exactly how much do I need to bring uh, to the closing table or be prepared to pay at the closing table. And so now is that something that you can help with? Absolutely. You know, what we do is we prepare a, a, a cost sheet, uh, which is called a good faith estimate. And um, uh, by law, uh, a lender cannot change uh, 1%, can't change uh, uh, anything on that, that sheet. Um, th those fees are kind of locked into place. And um, and that's, that's protect the, the buyer against uh, lenders that may, you know, promise one thing and deliver another. Mm -hmm. So that's a good thing. So good faith estimate is prepared. Um, and there, there are uh, lenders that actually can help, uh, do help with uh, with closing costs actually. So one of the other fees at closing are prepaids. Uh, prepaids are taxes and insurance that are due on a house and they're rolled into the payment. Most of the time people escrow those or allow the lender to pay those and so the lender actually collects in the payment, in the in the combined payment, their principal interest and also their taxes and the insurance that are going to be due one time a year. So a lender will collect those in the payment. So they'll amortize those basically and it'll spread it out throughout the year. Well that's right. And so you pay about a twelfth of it every time. Cool. So in order to in order for that all to come out right, there needs to be some uh, gathered up, you know, gathered up at the first of the loan. So those are called prepaids because um, obviously if you close, you know, if you if taxes are due in October and you're you're closing in June, you know, then the seller pays them up to the time of closing, and then you need to you know, basically an escrow account set up for you, um, and you need a, an amount in there that'll carry you to the time to be added to the the amount that's given in your payment, where you'll have enough tax money collected uh, when it comes due. So in, in saying that, I'll say this, that um, escrows or prepaids are an additional fee to closing costs uh, that need to be paid. Um, so uh, when you're talking about how much you owe at closing, first time home buyer, you know, they do a diligent job of saving money. They want to know that they're going to be able to uh, perform on their contract and mm -hmm. close the loan. Mm -hmm. So we do a, a careful analysis of the fees that are due and of who's paying them, and we get that to the first-time homebuyer, you know, right up front. So cool, cool. And so there is in, in with uh, with my buyers usually the lender is very good about pinpointing exactly what will be due. Uh, period uh, uh, for all those things, and that and it was good for us to know, you know, how those prepaids work and everything like that, but. But basically, I guess what a listener needs to take away is that you'll calculate that for them. You'll yeah. say, here's basically, you know, here's how I got here. But basically, what you need to know is here's what to bring to the closing That's table. exactly right. Yeah. I got a little technical there. But basically, no yeah. basically what it is is that we uh, we calculate an amount that's going to be due at closing. And um, we itemize that so that you'll know exactly where your money's going and, and what, you know, what to expect. Cool, cool. So, um, so then, uh, you know, closing day comes, uh, what, usually how it works is, you know, the seller will pick a time to come and close and then the buyer will pick a time to come and close. It's, it's separate. Usually you don't even see each other come to the closing table. They will sign papers till their hands hurt. Yes. And then usually, uh, the title company will say, okay, now we're going to wait for the funds to be wired in. Correct. Yes. So, so what's actually going on there? Well, there's a, something called a closer. So, so far we have me, we have a processor, we have the underwriter, and we have a closer. Uh, the closer gets all the paperwork from the title company, and there's kind of a back and forth with the final figures. And the reason why the figures are changing is there's a per diem interest, or there's interest every day that's due on, on a loan, and, and also uh, taxes and insurance are being also calculated and finalized. So, when all the figures are correct, uh, what they do is, is they send a good faith estimate to the title company uh, for approval. The title company works out their figures, sends it back to the lender for approval, then the lender actually wires the money uh, to the title company's bank account uh, for a disbursement to the seller. And so what they do is they take the uh, first time home buyer's uh, 
down payment money and any closing costs that they're paying out of pocket. And um, then they marry that with, uh, with the funds uh, from the mortgage company and they give the seller the money for their house. And the first time home buyer walks out with a note um, that they'll start paying on. And normally, typically, what happens is, let's say you close them in uh, July, uh, then you're going to skip uh, August payment, and your first payment is going to be September 1st. So you okay. you walk out with the keys and a, and a note for a new house. Cool. Cool. Very cool. And so that's when, you know, usually they'll say, after you sign, they'll say, okay, we're going to wait for wiring, go, go grab lunch, go grab some coffee or something, come back in a couple hours. And and so they come back and they get to take keys home with them to their new home to their new house, which is pretty cool. That isn't that yeah. is a very cool thing. Yeah, so very cool. And so after that, what what happens? Do they get a bill for their mortgage every month? How's that work? Well, they do. I mean, they'll they'll get a they'll get a statement, or, uh, and uh, a lot of people today are are paying their mortgage online. Um, it's very convenient, easy to do. Um, but yeah, you do automatic drafts, stuff like that. Automatic drafts. Cool. And one of the things that we encourage people to do, um, GMAC offers a, uh, a bi-weekly payment. We feel like that those are uh, something that everybody, depending on how you get paid anyway, um, everybody should at least try to fit into their, their family finances. Um, and that's where you pay your half of your payment twice a month. Okay? So let's say you have a thousand dollar payment. You're going to have a payment due, actually not twice a month. So let me correct myself. Every two weeks. So what you do is you end up um, making 26 of those those periods. So that's an extra payment a year. Yeah. Uh, which isn't a lot of money, but the way it's paid, uh, biweekly payment can actually save. It can knock off nine years yeah. off of a typical 30 year mortgage. And so that's nine years that you're not going to have to pay GMAC or whoever your lender is back. And that is, that is very important for a couple of reasons. Not only, not only uh, does it save you sometimes tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars in interest, um, but it can also create equity faster. You're accelerating mm -hmm. the amount of equity. So, you know, Perchance you do move, you're going to have more equity coming out of that house. And for a modicum of a difference in payment on an annualized basis. Yeah, so that's, that's a cool thing that you brought up. I'm glad you did because um, paying half of it every two weeks and paying uh, all of it every month, um, it doesn't feel very different, but you do get another pay, an extra payment in there every year. And it adds up that way. So that's a great way. Um, you know, maybe you can't do a 15-year mortgage. You have to do a 30. But to do a bi-weekly 30, you do. You get that equity in there a little bit faster, a little bit quicker, um, and build it up. I mean, the average person stays in a home for, uh, you know, around six years or so. Uh, so, you know, just to get that little bit in there so that in the uh, six years, you've got a little more equity put into that house. But it didn't really feel like you did much more, um, but it got you a little bit more equity in the house to go on to the next one or, or whatever you want to do. Um, so that's that's very cool. I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, cool. And GMAC provides that for any of their um, for any of their customers free of charge. Awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Okay, so we've talked about the entire process. We've talked about. Uh, Appraisal. We've talked about the different types of mortgages, the terms, and all that stuff. Anything else that you think a first-time home buyer should know about the process? No, I think uh, go in with your eyes open, and you know, I think uh, gather up your documents and be thorough, and then try to enjoy the process. I mean, of all things, this should be an enjoyable process. This is the buying of your first home, and so uh, the more thorough you are, the more um, forthright you are uh, with your lender and, and, and get him everything or her everything that they need, um, you're, you're going to find that uh, the process can be uh, one that uh, is, is absolutely uh, one of the best processes that you ever bother doing because you're going to end up building equity and it is one of the best and um, greatest investments that any of us ever make is our home. Yeah, that's a good point. Cool. Well, I am, you know, very going to be very protective. You're my first guest ever on this podcast, 
I am going to be very protective about who I have on here. And the, the reason that I chose you is because, um, you know, you, you helped one of my clients and I was very impressed. And even, uh, this one transaction that I'm thinking of, there were some, uh, things that had kind of gone wrong. It was not no fault of your own. And it looked like we were going to have to push the closing date back a little bit, but you'd had a relationship with the, with the title company here in town. And we're able to pull some strings and, you know, this client needed to, we we're closing on a Friday and really needed to move in that weekend and really could not wait till Monday. And so you, um, you know, just worked your butt off to get that closing date happen. So I was really impressed. Um, and I, all my clients that have gone to you have had really good experiences. And, um, and, and so, you know, that's part of why I wanted to have you here. Now you work for GMAC. Uh, tell us where a listener can contact you. If you want to give, you know, a website or email or phone number, whatever you want to give, and then tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, any promotion that you have or anything that you'd want to say about about uh, GMAC. Thanks, Shane. I appreciate you having me on so much, and appreciate uh, what you're doing for your bars. Um, well, again, my name is Greg Bobbitt, and um, my my number is five one two. Uh, 557-9118 and uh, you can reach me there or you can uh, email me at greg.bobbitt that's B-O-B-B-I-T-T at G-M-A-C-M or G-M-A-C mortgage dot com so pretty simple there uh, I uh, uh, one thing I would have them do and know is um, that G-M-A-C is, is very uh conscientious uh, toward the home buying process and first-time home buyers uh, specifically. Um, and one of the things that we've come out with as a product is a program called Purchase Power. And um, although you uh, may be going to the seller asking for closing costs, GMAC is making a similar offer to, uh, to buyers in that um, there are many of the closing costs that would be in a traditional mortgage that GMAC is going to pick up uh, and pay. Um, we simply uh, help put more money into your house, or uh, and, and less. You know, you can put more money uh, into your house and less into closing costs because of this program. Um, uh, costs like the uh, underwriting fee and appraisal fee, document prep, uh, flood cert, uh, credit reporting fee, uh, lender title policy, uh, things like that, and settlement fee also. So uh, it really helps. Um, First-time home buyers get into homes uh, less expensively uh, than than traditional mortgages, anyway, uh, through this program. So, be delighted to work with any of your borrowers, or if anybody out there would like to contact me, that's how you do it. Um, you can email me again at greg.bobbitt at gmacn.com. Cool. And so, you know, one thing to touch on uh, that you're able to offer, you know, those those promotions where you pay for those things that are traditionally closing costs. And, you know, maybe a listener out there is thinking, well, I'm going to get the seller to pay closing costs anyway, so that doesn't really help me. What they need to realize is, is that they're paying for it one way or another. Um, if the seller is going to pay for the closing costs, well, they've just uh, put that into the purchase price. Um, so the less that you can ask for your seller paying closing costs, uh, the better because you're going to get to take that off the asking price. Well, that's true. And then the other thing is, is that uh, when you when you go into these situations, sometimes you're wanting a house and somebody else is wanting that same house. So when you go into a situation where you your contract may be in competition with another contract and you have to ask the seller for less closing costs, uh, that puts your contract in obviously an advantage. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It gives you, yeah, just like you said, that competitive advantage. And, you know, if you are, um, you know, basically if the, if the seller is going to net more from your offer, then they're going to take your offer. So that's cool. Exactly. Very cool. Anything else, Greg? Uh, not that I can think of. I just cool. really, again, thank you, Shane, for inviting me. And uh, uh, you guys that are first-time homebuyers, uh, just encourage you to get into the process and find out where you where you stand in the process. Go see a lender today. Yeah, cool. Hey, thanks, Greg. And as always, I'm Shane Blackshear with uh, FirstTimeHomeBuyer.com. Uh, sorry, FirstTimeHomeBuyerGuy.com. That's where you can uh, sign up for one of my first-time homebuyers classes. Uh, you can find me at uh, your-atx-realtor.com.
and uh, that's my website. You can search the MLS. You can find out some information. You can contact me. Always my email is shane.blackshear at kw. That's as in kellerwilliams.com. And I'd uh, love to hear from you. My phone number is 512-550-8765. If I can help you buy your first home, I would love to do that. We can arrange a consultation. And, uh, or you can just call and pick my brain over the phone or over email. Uh, listen, if you have any questions that you want us to address on this podcast, please email me, call me, uh, let me know. I want to know what you think. Um, and I know that if you have any questions for Greg, he'd love to help you out with that as well. Um, if you're in a different part of, of the, the country, if you're outside of the Austin area um, and you would like to get a referral, help me, I can help you with that. Um, so give me a call. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye.